Paris's 1900 Games marked the first female participation in the Olympics. Those women constituted about 2% of the athletes. This summer, nearly 49% of Olympic competitors will be women, along with a record number in the Paralympics. On this very podcast, more than half of the athletes you've heard this season are women. And while the 121 years since Paris have seen many positive changes, the battle for equal recognition and access is far from won. When you have leaders on a team like Megan Rapina who open the door, not open it, blow the door down, it allows everyone else to have that mentality of, wow, like, it's okay for me to be this way. It shouldn't be, oh, it's female or male. It should just be, oh, that's a badass athlete on the front cover. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the Tokyo Olympic Games. As we near Tokyo, we'll bring you the story shaping the greatest athletic competition in all the world, held in extraordinary times. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the 12 episodes leading up to the opening ceremony, we'll dive weekly into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. consecutive Olympic Games, the United States are into the gold medal match in the most dramatic of circumstances. Alex Morgan with a winning goal in the 122nd minute. Absolutely extraordinary drama. Undeniable. It's what women have had to be in order to receive the attention necessary for change. And in the U.S. medal count, they've been just that. For the country with the highest medal count in Rio, women accounted for 61 medals to the men's 55. In London, it was 58 to 45. American women on their own would have tied as the country with the most gold medals at the last Olympics. But in an industry where contract negotiations are newsworthy, the pay gap is still glaringly evident. Beyond the numbers, inequality in perception also showed its presence when the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee president resigned after making a comment implying women were too talkative. That if they increase the number of female board members, the board meetings would never end because female members tend to speak more. One group of women is praised both for their success on the field, winning four golds and six Olympics, but also for how much they're willing to talk and what they're willing to say the U.S. women's national team. The next time I see the men's team, I will have to remind them that you guys beat the men in viewership. You guys done good. Hi, I'm Ashlyn Harris. And I'm Allie Krieger. And we play for the U.S. women's national team. Ashlyn Harris, Allie Krieger, you've been teammates with some of the more influential female athletes today. Why this group of women? Why not this group of women? I feel like we all feel that we, yes, we want to leave the game better than where we found it. And we never want to just be defined by footballers. I mean, there might be some in the group that would just be really good footballers. But I feel like there's a lot of our teammates in these women who are so confident and impactful and positive and want to just change the world and fight for 
issues that they believe in. It's pretty incredible to see every single day. And I think we all just motivate each other um, within the group to want to do more and be more and use our voice and platforms more. And so I think it's just a feeling that you have, like that you can use your own platforms, but you can also use U.S. soccer's platforms, NWSL platform, um, you know, our specific clubs platform to really speak up for, you know, communities and issues that we want to fight for and that we believe in. I genuinely believe that when you have leaders on a team like Megan Rapino, mm-hmm. who open the door, not open it, blow the damn door down yeah, and does. is not scared yeah. to ruffle feathers and be outspoken and not be the nice girl and go by and, you know, our, you know, you, you should be sweet and grateful and all these things as a female It allows everyone else to have that mentality of, wow, like, it's okay for me to be this way. It's okay Mm -hmm. for me to stand up for my rights. It's okay Mm -hmm. for me to be unapologetically me. Mm -hmm. It's okay for me to live my truth. I think in the past, you had, like, your leaders, and they were the spokes women of the team, and that was that. And I think Megan Rapinoe came in and was like, you want to fight for childcare? Mm-hmm. You want to fight for this and LBGTQ plus rights? I'm in. Let's go. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was because you're in somewhat of a unique position of being female Olympians, activists, right, for women and LGBTQ plus rights, the spouses of a professional female athlete. And in the last months now, mothers to a beautiful baby girl were sort of flooded by your daughter Sloane's cuteness and this whole family picture, but it took a lot to get here. Let's go back to the beginning. How'd you meet? Yeah, Ali and I um, knew about each other and I was injured at one point. I was in LA doing some rehab and I had stopped by to see some of my college teammates and I just stopped into a training and, and said hi and I met Ali just passing by. And um, when I came back from injury in my first year in, in the WPS, I ended up coming into national team camp mm-hmm. and we just totally hit it off at the beginning. We were best friends and we were sitting we were on the bus uh, on planes right next to each other. And Mm -hmm. we just definitely had like this connection and it was infectious to be around her and it was exciting and new. And, you know, we talked about our hopes and our dreams and all the things. And it was just, we really bonded. We were like best friends at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was really cool. And then it, it, you know, we had a really awesome friendship and foundation and, um, it just moved on to, you know, a a relationship and, you know, 10, 11 years later, we haven't looked back since. And now (laughs) we just adopted a beautiful daughter together. And, um, from that first day on the bus, when we met, um, we actually both told each other that maybe it was like a couple of rides on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like the first time we're like, hey, yeah, I don't know. I don't know adopting. Yeah. Too. We spoke about adopting, you know, a, hopefully yeah. a, a diverse family and a black child. And now full circle, like 12 years later, here we are like literally mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. what we spoke about on that bus ride. Which is crazy because you don't really, we signed up for any gender, any race, like any, any child. So it's just like wild how it all it, worked it out. turned out the way that we 
had spoken about 11 years ago. But as female professional athletes and teammates, I would imagine there's risk to that. I think the difficult part for Ali and I was, you know, it, I didn't want it. We didn't want it to jeopardize our position um, since we were on the same team with the U S team and mm-hmm. with club. We didn't want to, you know, honestly be cut for that or make anyone feel uncomfortable or mm-hmm. um, it was a really tricky thing. But I, I think if you speak to anyone, any coaching staff an administrator or a teammate, we were very, very, very professional almost to a point where people are like, okay, we get it. You guys like relax, like unbutton a little bit. <laughs> Um, but we took it, we took pride in that. And when we went to work, it was business. And mm-hmm. um, we actually didn't start rooming together until we were married. So we always mm-hmm. had Megan Rapino was always my roommate. Crystal Dunn was always Allie's roommate. So when we were on the road, mm-hmm. it was kind of like we were just homies. Like that's how, you know, how it was. And we got to see our best friends. And then we, when we'd come home, it was like, okay, now it's family time. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. We were just so scared of the dynamic of what could happen if people had an issue with it. And, you know, not everyone is always as accepting as we would like. Um, so we were really fearful. We were fearful for our sponsorships. We were fearful for our image and our career, careers independently that we had built our brand. Um, you know, that's what paid the bills. So it was definitely a scary time. And, I was absolutely shocked when we did come out how much support and mm-hmm. understanding and accept, like everyone was so happy. We were like celebrated for it, mm-hmm. um, which was so cool. And, you know, I, I just feel like for so long, I was so worried and so scared and like felt like I couldn't really make that next step like mm-hmm. publicly. And then, then when we did it, Ali and I both were like, why did we take so long? I think it was only when we started owning our truth mm-hmm. is when we fully started living mm. instead of just existing. And we also felt like we weren't giving our club, our teammates, our families, our friends, everything uh, that we had because we we weren't living out loud like we weren't, um, we didn't put our relationship out there from the very beginning. And I feel like then once we did that and once we were like, Hey, we're going to engage or we're getting married. This is who we are. This is us like it or leave it. And then that's when we felt like we were now giving everything to our work and our family and our friends. And that's something that I think was one of the biggest changes for me personally. And you've seen the results, right? Giving everything has allowed you to pursue a lot of success together, a success that isn't always fairly rewarded between the sexes. The U.S. Women's National Team have been able to legally challenge the pay and logistics gap with their male counterparts. How do you feel about that? Well, unfortunately, that's really not, it's not something, all we can do is show up every day and you know, be the best that we can at our job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't write the checks. I don't do the merchandise. I don't do all the things, but people tell me no, 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 no. All the time to what everything, whether I'm outspoken or I'm fighting for this, or you're not going to be able to get that, or you should be grateful for this. And I think if you just continue to, 
bang on that damn door and not let someone tell you no, 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 no. You just got to keep showing up and you got to keep fighting. And, you know, like even for us in our community, like I am, we are constantly trying to do things to progress and figure out like, okay, this is our worth. This is what we should be getting paid. This is how we should be treated. Like we're constantly fighting for the whole. And yeah, people say no all the time, but that doesn't mean we have to stop. That means we just got to keep working harder. I think, you know, equal pay for equal work. You know, we put in the same amount of work and time and we deliver year after year. We have sold out stadiums and we have sold out jerseys and we have checked every single box at this point. Um, So the problem is, is we win. We're winners, which there's a cost that comes with that. Um, so having equal pay will be very costly for our federation and they need to be willing to, you know, step up and, and eat that so we can move forward. You know, I think always the argument is, oh, the women have made more money than the men. This, that, that's because we win. That's because we tick every box consistently every year, but it is by no means equal. So my hope is even FIFA at some point can figure it out and we can have the same amount of money for the win for winning a world cup for both sides. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it makes no sense to me. You know, TV ratings are skyrocketing. So what, what is the excuse besides just feeling like they don't want to, I, I don't know. It's so confusing, but. Um, yeah, I just feel like we got a little bit more work to do. It's a little bit more complicated, um, but we'll get there. You know, we will definitely get there and we're hopeful sometime, you know, we might never see the benefits of it, but I'm hopeful for, for, you know, future generations that they will not have to be our age and wondering what to do next. I think slowly there has been progress, but I don't think it'll ever get to a point I mean I should never you know I'm not gonna say never but I mean like years and years and years down the road I think until people start to really recognize that women's football is you know you can't really compare it to the men's side it's just it's its own sport because it's just different and also I feel like until you get women in powerful positions um across all industries and in FIFA and in U.S. soccer, I mean, fortunately, we do have a female president in U.S. soccer. But until we have more women in those powerful positions, I don't know if necessarily we're going to see a lot of change happen very quickly. So that's why um, we need to kind of continue to do what we want to do and really put ourselves in positions of power and make to create change. And um, just like Ashlyn always says, you can never create change just by staying in your lane. You know, there was, I think, Alex or Pino or I don't know who was on the front of the FIFA 21 video game, which is is progress. But also people still make comments of, you know, of course, um, that, you know, it's a female athlete and it should just be, oh, that's that's a badass athlete on the front cover. It shouldn't be, oh, it's female or male. And so I think we need to get to a point, obviously the work will never be done. Um, and we just have to keep fighting and keep speaking up and get women in positions of power who can really impact. I think being badass of all of the things you are is kind of the most 
I don't know, undeniable part of this generation of female soccer players. I'm always baffled about claims around women's sports being less tough than the men's. Like the women's game is very, it's a very different type of game. It's very physical. It's very entertaining. It's, you know, you watch in a men's game, they get stepped on and they're rolling on the ground and it's just very dramatic, dramatic emotional. Women, I mean, you've got, you know, head split and mouth split and, you know, we just keep going. We're just built that way. I think if we're just celebrated for maybe it being a little different and not being constantly compared to Mm -hmm. our male counterpart, um, it'll, it'll hit differently. And that needs to be through all cultures. It's also a different type of game. When you watch it, it's just such a different type of game and the way we approach it and the mentality. And I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's a lot different than, you know, just saying, Oh, there's a women's game on. Oh, there's a men's game on. It's just like, it's just a different football game. Yeah. Different in many ways, but one thing that I love is that some of the competitors are breastfeeding at halftime. I mean, that makes headlines, but should it? I feel like that's just like an everyday thing for us. Um, You know, there's four moms on our team. And so this is like, you know, we have the kids around all the time. I mean, if you guys could just come on a travel day with us, it's honestly insane to see all the strollers and the bags and the, you know, our teammates helping, carrying all the things. But yeah, this is like our day-to-day life. We have the kids on the field after the game. I mean, they're running around. I, I know a lot of other, you know, parents, you know, say, I, I see it more maybe in the MLS than I do anywhere else. But like, you know, the kids coming out onto the field and running and playing after the games, which is nice to see. Or in the English Premier League or other leagues around the world. That's nice. It's not often enough, but um, for us as female athletes, I think it's so important to continue to have that be normalized and like, well, yeah, our kids are coming on the trip and yeah, they're going to be up in the suite safe. And then after the game, they're going to come down and they're going to run onto the field and it's going to be like an everyday event. I mean, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, you know, something that's um, a one-off. I I just think at the end of the day, and you talk about normalizing, you know, breastfeeding it's very normal in our locker room. Uh, Sydney LaRue is my locker teammate and, you know, when Rue was born and she was getting back to playing, mm-hmm. she was breastfeeding before halftime and after the game right in her locker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like she has to hear, you know, what's going on at halftime and the adjustments being made. And that means there's staff in there. That mm-hmm. means, you know, th- that was a very normal and real thing. And, um, I think the biggest thing is if you look at our teammates who are moms, I think we are a clear um, vision for women out there that you don't have to choose to be a mom or have a really great career or an athletic career or whatever career you decide. Um, You can do both. Mm -hmm. And just like anything, it's difficult. Like it's, I'm not going to say that it's not hard and you know, all the things, but you are, like we are capable of doing insane things. And that's just like one thing I've learned out of this whole experience. Like when Allie and I are up every three hours taking care of our beautiful child and then waking up at seven 30 mm-hmm. and then going, going to, to be leaders and captains and big people on our team and showing mm-hmm. up for games and, you know, changing the out, like we can do incredible things. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's proof that 
You don't have to choose. Mm -hmm. You've built up this strength to do the incredible things you're talking about through struggle. I mean, Ali, your last name translates in German to warrior. I understand you recently wrote letters to your younger selves. What would you say to a young Asher Ali or even a younger girl today? I was actually alone at home. I was rocking Sloan to mm-hmm. sleep in the nursery. And that's when I wrote mine. And it just was very real and honest. And um, I really feel like I could have, you know, wrote a whole novel about my experience and how at times like it was very hard and the journey was very dark and that's also okay. And it's okay to like have really hard days. And it, it just felt so real and raw because it has been this roller coaster ride and we didn't have representation like we do now. You know, there wasn't queer people in movies. There wasn't queer people celebrated in commercials, on billboards, in magazines. It almost Mm -hmm. justified you of why you should hide and why you should feel shame. And it was this whole, like snowball effect that just kept layering heavy, 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 heavy. And then now we live in a world where every queer role doesn't have a devastating uh, ending. And it's important. Visibility is so freaking important. I couldn't find people who looked like me. So I Mm -hmm. struggled for so long. And I'm just so grateful that children, you know, can see that, you know, we get happy endings that Ali and I live this beautiful life that should be celebrated that we have, you know, these wonderful outlets and chosen family and all these great things on the other side that Mm -hmm. we truthfully didn't have as kids. And it led to a long road of struggle. And my hope is like doing all these things and talking about our experience and sitting down with companies and letting them understand and hear why representation matters for our community, this is what's going to make children okay. So that's why Ali and I have always said from the beginning, once we we decided to come out, we are moving forward. We are about representation. We are about being seen. We are about being heard. We are about representing the people in our community who don't have the platform. And I feel like we just like haven't looked back And we're just like constantly advocating for our community Mm -hmm. to be seen and heard. And now, an improbable but not impossible moment with NBC's Mary Carrillo. Born in racially segregated Tennessee, Wilma Rudolph's early life did little to hint at the athletic greatness that lay ahead. The 20th of 22 siblings, Rudolph was born prematurely. In her first years, she contracted pneumonia, scarlet fever, and polio, the last of which temporarily paralyzed her left leg. Even after beating polio, she spent her early life limited from how weak her left leg and foot had become. Her race meant that medical care did little in the way of improving her situation, with her doctor concluding that she would never walk again. But what wasn't taken into account in that diagnosis was Wilma's spirit. 
Multiple times a week, she would painstakingly make the 100-mile round trip to the only hospital that would offer black patients physiotherapy, eventually wearing a leg brace. Miraculously, by the time she was 12, Wilma could walk without any issues. But walking wasn't enough. Instead, she enrolled in high school sports, where it was discovered that the once sickly girl with a clunky leg brace and uneven shoes was actually the most gifted runner they had ever seen. Ed Temple, Tennessee State University's track coach, noticed her immediately and invited the then 14-year-old Rudolph to train with the university's track team. She had beautiful form, beautiful form, and was a joy to see her run. On a trip to Philadelphia that year, she won all nine track events she entered. Still in junior high school, Rudolph attended the 1956 U.S. Olympic trials. She qualified and made her Olympic debut at the age of 16. Rudolph and her teammates competed in the women's 4 by 100 meter relay and matched the previous world record time to clinch bronze. When 1960 rolled around, Wilma Rudolph was ready to run in Rome, and run she did, blazing her way to no less than three Olympic gold medals in the 100, 200, and 4 by 100 relay. Reporters couldn't get enough of her athleticism and grace, but her race meant the papers lauded the Black Panther and the Perle Noir, or Black Pearl, rather than the title her record-setting performances actually merited the fastest woman in the world. As the first U.S. woman to win three gold medals in a single Olympics, and now one of the most visible black women in the world, Wilma returned to the place of her childhood, Clarksville, Tennessee. Welcome Wilma Day was planned as a triumphant October 4th banquet and parade. It was also planned, like all the other events in the town's history, to be racially segregated. Wilma had not beaten polio broken out of her leg brace and run her way into international greatness to be limited. So she did what she always did, broke the odds and the status quo and used her newfound power to create change step by step. Welcome Wilma Day stands as Clarksville's very first racially integrated municipal event. Olympic winners are simply defined as finishing first Olympic champions are much more. They are women, they are leaders, they are activists, and they are those who believe that frail girls in leg braces can and do run the world. I'm listening to you and I'm wondering what can men do? I'm afraid that in the sports world I operate in, there's a lot of hype around the Olympics and the World Cup when it's time to be winners. How can we go from listening to women because they're champions to doing so because they're just people? I, I do think for there to be real change, it is going to have to come from a lot of our men who, you know, like us are a little bit of a younger generation and we don't look down to women. We don't view women as someone who should be in the house cooking and cleaning, but as our equal. Um, so I think, you know, I'm hopeful that at some point our men's team will be more outspoken about equal pay and equal progress and equality, because I do think it's going to take 
a lot more than us just fighting, 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 fighting. It's going to take our men lifting us Mm -hmm. and really pushing the needle forward to say, you know what, this isn't right and it's not fair. And these women are damn good and they deserve a lot. And we need to step up to the plate and make sure it happens because it's just not fair. And I think until we really grasp that idea, um, they'll just keep trying to silence us. And that's how it's been, you know, for the last few years. But we don't plan to stop. So this, you know, we've got all types of energy and all types of platforms. We don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So my hope is men show up for us and continue to give us the platform. To yeah. Speak and, and, and lift us up and support and us. your groups of friends, you know, like how you speak about women and how you act towards women. Um, it matters and how you hold each other accountable. It matters. And there really is an opportunity, right? With the global nature of soccer to bring women's sports forward, but also to normalize the gains you've already fought so hard for. I think that we have to keep showing up and supporting our women. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to set a really good example and celebrate women so other cultures see that Mm -hmm. and start making the shift as well. That's one of the beauties of watching women's sports. Other than the amazing play, we're watching change. Over the course of 120 years of women in the Olympics, Many obstacles have been placed in their path, but each game's higher, faster, and stronger performances have been achieved. Many labels apply to the women we'll see in Tokyo, athlete, woman, activist, entrepreneur, mother. Many others have been used against women in sports. Because of all of that, one label rings the truest. We'll be watching champions the joy right like the joy that you have every single day no matter if you're winning or losing it's like all right well am i still having fun yes all right let's keep going it's just so important to just always like remember the human element like i just am happy to celebrate like you talk about the journey and this and that and sometimes it's not always about winning gold medals and you know medals collecting dust on shelves like These are incredible women who have impacted this country greatly, who have impacted my life greatly, my wife, my family, Mm -hmm. my child. And I think when when I am ready to hang all this up, it's always been about the people for me. They've given me strength to speak up. It honestly, it saved my life. And that's it for this week's episode of The Podium. Follow now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads. For more Olympic content ahead of Tokyo, check out NBCOlympics.com. And starting July 23rd, tune into the networks of NBC.